Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sari, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sari was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sari, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Lord, uh, thank you again for your word. And I pray that you would be with us again this morning. Uh, teach us from your word specifically, Lord. Make us alive, full of blessing, that we may be a blessing to others, Lord. That we may carry on and be part of and t- partake in and be blessed by the mission that you are undertaking in the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, uh, quite a few years ago, they released a movie called Apollo 13, starring Tom Hanks, uh, chronicling the Apollo 13 crisis. Uh, Apollo 13 was the third lunar landing mission, uh, sending astronauts to go land on the moon. And shortly after they exited Earth orbit on the way to the moon, some of you may remember this, uh, there was an explosion on board which did not kill the astronauts, but damaged the spacecraft. And having left Earth orbit, there was no way to turn around and come back except to continue going all the way to the moon, to loop around the far side of the moon and come back. And so the movie chronicles how the NASA engineers are working tirelessly day and night against tall odds, trying to figure out how to keep the three astronauts in the crippled spaceship alive for the several-day journey to the moon and the several-day journey back. And crisis after crisis after crisis comes up, and uh, they miraculously find a way to solve each one of them. The most memorable to me is when they realize that they're running out of air to breathe because they're hiding out uh, in the lunar landing module because that's the portion of the spaceship that's still functioning. Uh, But the lunar landing module was not designed to support people for that long. And so the filters that are supposed to scrub the carbon dioxide out of the air have filled up. And so the astronauts are having trouble breathing. And it turns out that the filters in the lunar landing module were square. And uh, the ones in the rest of the spaceship were round. Uh, or maybe the other way around, I can't remember, but they, did, were, they had to figure out basically how to fit a round peg into a square hole with just what the astronauts had on board. And so there's the scene where these uh, engineers lock themselves in a room with only what the astronauts have and try and figure out how to tape this thing up together. And they finally get it right, and then they radio the directions up to the astronauts, and they're able to 
connect this filter, the round one, to the square hole and continue to breathe. And so it's days and days and days and days of that sort of stuff. And uh, once the astronauts have made it past the moon, most of the way back, they're still alive, uh, they're coming towards reentry. Uh, the NASA scientists realize that their course, their trajectory, is just about a degree off. Uh, and I'm told when you're coming in from outer space towards the Earth, if your angle's uh, like half a degree too shallow, you will burn up and crash straight into the Earth. And if it's half a degree too wide, you'll just skip off the atmosphere and head back out into space. Uh, and their computer wasn't working, and so they had to manually fire the thrusters and try and control their direction to get it within just half a degree of where it needed to be. Uh, and so they give it a shot, and it works. And uh, as many of you know, they came down and survived, and some of them are still alive. The point being, uh, when you are navigating, uh, especially at high speed, in space or in a plane or on a ship, just a, a small degree of error or change in your direction makes a radical difference in your course. Uh, this Sunday, uh, Todd's not here, and so he asked me to preach one sermon, and then next Sunday we're going to start a book, on, uh, a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, so this is what I call a one-fur, uh, a one sermon, one Sunday on one topic, uh, up to me, to what we want to do. And so I chose uh, to take a look at the foundations, to just set before us again, uh, where are we headed? What is our trajectory? What is our mission? Because doing church and really doing life uh, takes a lot of work. There are people who come here every Sunday and unlock the doors, brew the coffee, watch the children in the nursery, uh, cut up the bread for the communion. And even outside of church, in your life as believers, uh, your day-to-day -day actions are filled with waking up, going to work, changing diapers. And these things are all important activities that have to go on, just like getting the filters to work so the astronauts can breathe. Those are uh, important things that need to happen. But while all that's going on, unless we remember what our mission is, what our trajectory is, all of those details and work in the end are for naught. And just like with the spaceship, its direction is largely determined from the moment of launch. When it lifts off from the launch pad, it immediately sets out on an angle. And that sets its trajectory. Is this a, a low orbit? Is it a high orbit? Is it a polar orbit? Are we leaving orbit? Where, where is the ship headed? Uh, so in Christianity, there's a moment of launch in the Bible where God begins the mission of restoring the world. And I think if we take a look at that passage... Uh, this passage from Genesis, it will help set before us again uh, the trajectory, the mission that we are headed on uh, together, that all of our service in and out of the church is part of. Uh, if you like to take notes, um, our outline will go like this. We're going to take a look at God's work of blessing. We're going to take it our work of blessing. And then we're going to take a look at the people God calls to be a blessing. Uh, so God's part, our part in blessing, and then who it is that God calls. In the beginning of the Bible, we have uh, creation in Genesis 1 and 2. So God creates everything, and it's good. 
And then there's the fall in Genesis 3, and that begins the crisis, which we still live with today, that things are a mess, they're not the way they should be. And in that very moment, God promises in Genesis 3 that he will send someday an answer. He said that he will send one of the woman's offspring, one of Eve's offspring, to crush the serpent, to end all evil. Uh, And so Adam and Eve have that promise, but nothing happens right away. And in fact, uh, Genesis 3 through 11 are sort of a a catalog of everything that could potentially go wrong with the world. Uh, It sort of proceeds from bad to worse. And so if you're reading Genesis, you know something must be coming, and it's not coming yet. And then finally we meet this wandering family in Genesis chapter 11. And out of the blue... God begins to speak. He says, Now the Lord said to Abram, this is uh, Genesis 12, verse 1, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is, uh, this is the beginning of God's initiative to begin his mission to restore the world. Uh, and it is that we are, as his people, to be blessed so that we can be a blessing. We are blessed by him so that we can be a blessing. That, that is the trajectory that we're on that we're going to be talking about for the next little bit. Um, before we dig into application, I want to take a look at uh, a few things about the text. The first one is that God begins his work with a specific person. If you have been reading the Bible for a while, this text may be so familiar that you, the stark, startling nature that God begins with a specific person may have worn off. But think about this. The whole world is longing for redemption, and when God begins, he finally speaks. He speaks to a specific person. He calls Abram and calls him to go from his country and uh, gives him the promise of blessing and the mission to go be a blessing. And this helps make sense of these promises that God gives to Abram. He promises to make his name great. He promises to make him a great nation. He promises to bless those who bless Abraham and to curse those who curse Abraham. And really, it's, it's not even about Abraham, it's about his mission, that these blessings come on Abraham because from this point on, God, for whatever reason, has decided that his mission in the world will be associated with a specific person. And so from this point on in Genesis, if you want in on what God is doing, you've got to get with Abraham. And if you curse Abraham, you are now in the way of what God is doing simply because God has chosen that he's going to work through this specific person. And from him, uh, through a specific people, that's what the nation is about, that he's founding a kingdom. Uh, he's, God is the king, and he's building a people, and Abraham is the first one, but that's the promise, to make him a great nation, so that all of Abraham's descendants after him will be part of this blessed group of people out in the world to begin God's work. Now, if I've sort of already suggested that this promise to Abraham applies to us, and let me sort of back that up just for a minute, that the promise is passed on to Abraham and to his children. 
Uh, it mentions that in this passage, and it becomes real clear in Genesis. The, the, passage, the promise passes on from family to family. And then in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew begins with a genealogy. And the genealogy starts with Abraham and ends with Jesus. So when Matthew is telling you about Jesus, the first thing he wants you to know is that this blessing that started with Abraham gets passed down from person to person to person to person to person to person to person, and then finally gets passed down to Jesus. And then the last thing we get in the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus giving the great commission to his disciples. Jesus says to them, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I will suggest to you that what we call the Great Commission, this passage from Matthew, is really Christ's own reflection on the original commission that was given to Abraham in Genesis 12, to be blessed and be a blessing. And Christ has inherited that promise, and he is passing it on to his disciples. Paul uh, makes that clear in the book of Galatians. He says this, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And he continues on. This is in uh, Galatians chapter 3. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as of many you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The, the argument there almost goes in the opposite direction would be, that we would expect. If you are Christ's, therefore, as a result of being Christ's, you are descendants of Abraham. You have received his promise. And so everything that we're going to talk about this morning about Abraham's mission pertains to us. And since I said that God initiated with a specific person with Abraham and decided that the mission His mission of restoration will go out through the world, through that people. That means that we have inherited this mission. Uh, Put another way, to speak very plainly, if God's mission to restore and redeem the world will happen in no other way than it going out forth into the world through Matt Goda and Jason Kimura and Amaris Capon and... Dave Saxton and Joel Cook and all of us here are partakers. We are part of this people. This is our heritage and our mission. So what do we learn about our mission? Well, blessing is the key word. Uh, We hear the word blessing five times within the two verses, Genesis 12, 2, and 3, which is a key to us. This is, this is the theme. That up to this point in the book of Genesis, we've only heard the word blessing just a couple times, and now it rains down. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That God's mission, as I said before, is about blessing his people 
so that we could be a blessing to the whole world. Now, I wish that I could tell you that blessing means that God is going to give us a lot of stuff. And uh, he's going to bless us with cars and money and large houses so that we can give those away to other people. Uh, I wish I could say that because I wish that was true. But experience tells us that's not really the way things work. That must not be what this means. Uh, But I also don't know that this passage really works that way. If we pay attention to the promises that God gives to Abraham uh, here in chapter 12 and in later passages in Genesis, uh, there's a lot of things you could say about blessing, but let me boil it down to this. God promises to bless Abraham by giving him uh, people, the great nation, by giving him a land, and by giving him relationship with himself. These are the three great blessings, the three great promises of the Old Testament. A people, a land, and a relationship with God. Now, the people we've already talked about, uh, we are inheritors of that promise. And so the very fact that God has brought us here, that he has brought you into this community, into the house of faith, and given us one another, that is part of the blessing that we have Uh, My son Ian turned two yesterday, and we were blessed to have uh, many of the other small children, Ian's friends in the congregation, over to our house to spend time with him. And uh, that is a blessing to him. It's a blessing to us to have this fellowship amongst his people. Uh, Land is the second one. It's a a large theme in the Old Testament um, that God has promised us the land. Will we inherit the land? We're wandering in the wilderness Uh, Will we enter into the land? But here's the thing with land. For most of the Old Testament, the land is something out there that has been promised but yet fully realized. Either the Israelites haven't entered into the land yet or they're in the land but things aren't working right because the Philistines are occupying part of the land or they've been kicked out of the land. Um, Land functions as a promise that in the end, God will bless his people with fruitfulness and abundance and rest. All the way back from the garden, the first blessings we hear in the Bible is that God blesses the birds and the fish of the sea and asks of them to be fruitful and multiply, that blessing means abundance. Uh, He blesses the Sabbath day of rest, that blessing means rest. But since the fall, that part of blessing sometimes comes to fruition and sometimes doesn't. And the author of Hebrews makes clear that the blessing of land really, for us, is about heaven. It's about knowing that we are finally headed, not now, but eventually, to a land that's like that. The author of Hebrews, writing about Abraham, says this in chapter 11. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, that he was ultimately looking for the heavenly city. The author of Hebrews goes on to say that Abraham died without seeing what he was looking for, 
but knowing that it was coming afar off. So this is the blessing of land, that we have heaven before us. A blessing of fellowship and God's people, uh, the blessing of heaven in front of us, and then finally relationship with God. Uh, this is perhaps the most important. And if you follow Abraham's story in the Old Testament, uh, there's a long, long struggle with whether or not he will have a child, whether or not there will they'll be even possible to have this promised people, whether or not there'll be a land. But the one thing he always has is his relationship with God, um, that he walks uh, through struggle, through good times and bad times, through his own faithfulness and faithlessness. And God is always there uh, by his side, uh, listening to him, conversing with him, uh, continuing to reassure him of his promises. And the most dramatic thing that happens, I, 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 let me put it this way, I, I defy you to read the story of Abraham and not come away with the impression that Abraham, as a result of his years of walk with the Lord, did not come away as a changed man. That we meet him uh, reluctant and slow and manipulative. And at the end of the story, he is the man that, the sort of man that I long to be, uh, gentle and faithful and joyful in the midst of uh, adversity and still trusting in God, that it's the ongoing relationship with God that God has blessed him with that is the thing that transforms him over time. Uh, I have been here just about a year and a half, and even in that time, I have already seen the change in many of you. Uh, I see it actively as you grow and become uh, more like Christ, more humble and more patient and more wise and gentle and caring and firm and steadfast for what's right as you walk with him day in and day out. That if you are here, part of his people, it is inevitable that he will do his work in you. Uh, so this is the blessing that God has given us as his people. Uh, I want us to see that... Uh, that there is also, in this passage, something for us to do as God's people. That yes, God initiates, and it's God who blesses, and it's God who calls Abraham for no purpose but his own. But there's still, there's something for Abraham to do. God calls Abraham to go. To go from his country and from his kindred, from his father's house, to the land that I will show you. He calls him to be a blessing. And uh, God's blessing to Abraham was unconditional, yes. But if Abraham had not gone, he would not have been able to fully, really participate in the blessing that God had for him, which was to, to be a blessing, to grow in his relationship with the Lord and his calling. Abraham is... Uh, is called to leave his family. One author put it this way, he's called to leave the consolation of familiarity and tradition far behind. Uh, this is easy for us to forget that Abram, his name isn't even Abraham at this point, it's still Abram, is a man with a culture that he came from Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, he was not even a believer. He was a man with a culture. His father, Terah, may well have been uh, a worshiper of the moon god because both Ur of the Chaldeans and Haran, the two cities mentioned, were both centers of moon worship. The name 
Terah is closely related to the Hebrew word for moon, uh, and both Sarai and Milcah may have been named after the moon god's wives. Uh, so Abraham is steeped in this culture, and it is something he is called to leave behind, that God is founding a new humanity, a new people, a new nation with their own traditions and customs. And it is uh, not going to be easy for him to step out and trust the Lord. So how does this relate to us? What is it that God has called us to do? How is it that we are to participate in the mission that he has for us to be a blessing to the world? And I would say that it is not entirely clear that the most exciting and frustrating thing about the Christian life that is really what we're called to do is to improvise like a jazz player on the theme that we've been given. We look at the themes and the teachings of the Bible and we improvise to the best of our ability what God has called us to do. Uh, But I think if we take Abraham as our model we can begin to improvise off that theme that Abraham left the culture that he was in. And uh, I don't think this means entirely leaving and separating from culture. What it means is that we reject those parts of culture that are evil. And we embrace that part of the kingdom, of God's kingdom, which is good, which is, in fact, a blessing to the world. Uh, I think the main way for most of us to do this is not even in our participation in church, but in our work. That each of you uh, get up in the morning the rest of this week with something to do. Some of you are mothers and you change diapers and feed children and instruct them. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are officers in the military. And in those capacities, in those jobs and missions that you have been given, you are an agent of Christ. You are part of his kingdom, that you do those things, yes, to provide for your family and to train up your children and to earn a salary, but really to be a blessing to the world. And I don't mean just by evangelizing your coworkers. I mean by doing what you're called to do. Uh, so many of you are military officers. I might uh, use work in the military as an example. Uh, God has, um, in this fallen world, ordained the sword as a means of bringing his justice and peace and security and goodness to bear. Uh, If you have any questions about that, all you have to do is look back a few chapters in Genesis 9, where God begins that work. And uh, you who work in the military, that is God's calling upon your life that sometimes I've had lunch with some of you, and at the end of your lunch, as you're headed back over to your office, wherever you're headed, I've said to you, hey, thanks for keeping us all safe. And I don't know that any of you have really ever taken me seriously. <laughs> but this is why I say that, is that this, this is why you work there, that I need you, that all the people in the world need you to be faithful to that part of God's kingdom to bring justice and mercy and peace in the world to bear. Uh, now, there's a flip side of this, and that, that's this. Let me put it this way, that if you are an officer or an enlisted man in the United States military, you are an officer in the kingdom of Christ 
presently serving under the auspices of the United States military. Does that make sense? So you are here to be a blessing and to do it through the military. But you are not allowed to participate in evil. And so uh, some of you, well, it's, uh, put it this way, that uh, as officers, you're called to serve, but to also be thinking men and to know the gospel and to examine your calling and, to, and mission and to know and discern whether or not what you're doing is evil or not. Perhaps this will help. Uh, World War I is a war that was fought between nations that at the time were largely comprised of professing Christians. The time of World War I, almost all Englishmen and Germans and French were professing Christians. And uh, hindsight is always twenty twenty. but as far as I can tell, there is little to no biblically justifiable reason why World War I needed to happen, why millions of men needed to be killed. And I believe that if our great-grandparents in Europe of that day had held their allegiance to the Lord Christ as having been more important than their allegiance to King George V or Kaiser Wilhelm I, that World War I may not have happened. And in our present day, when the Europeans who live today look on the past and see the past where Christian nations led to warfare and presume and conclude that Christianity leads to war, uh, it's not hard to blame them. That our decisions and our work have real consequences. Now, I don't know if it's really the place of a minister to tell you men uh, what you can and cannot should do in the military. Our place is to set before you the teaching of the kingdom of God uh, and to supply you with these words and to trust you to be knowledgeable and wise to make decisions uh, about your mission and that place, which, again, I want to repeat, is a good mission, uh, but ultimately one for Christ. Uh, I don't know if I'm old enough to have the wisdom necessary to uh, advise you in the decisions you have to make, but if you have any questions, you are certainly welcome to uh, chat with either Todd or I. Uh, Another arena, aside from work, where our participation in the kingdom of God, of being a blessing in the world comes to bear, is our relationships with the people that God has already placed in our life. Uh, The people that we all work with. The people that we live next to. uh, The people that we are related to, our friends and family and neighbors and co-workers. Uh, We are called to not to judge them, or condemn them, we are called to be a blessing to them, to feed upon and soak upon all the blessings that we have been given, and to be a force of of leaven, of light in their life. In learning about myself, I've discovered that my tendency in doing sermons is to sort of toss out these generalities uh, without a lot of specifics, which is not always helpful for many of you, and so I thought I might give you this very specific challenge Just step one, do not let February go by without sharing a meal with a non-Christian. That's all I'm asking. Just share 
a meal with a non-Christian. Go out to lunch with someone from work. Have, one, have someone over to your house that you consider a friend. And if you don't have a non-Christian friend, then strike up a friendship uh, by having them out to a meal. Not to treat them as a project, but to treat them as a friend. To be a blessing to them. Because it is ultimately, this text suggests, a blessing to us that we will not fully experience and participate in the blessing that God has for us without developing non-Christian friends and being a blessing to them in the place where we work and live. I am uh, abundantly convinced that this missional understanding of Christianity, that we are blessed to be a blessing, is the way that Christians understood their mission going back to the very early church. There's uh, a letter I thought of just last night, and uh, I wish I had been able to find it. I haven't found it, but I, I will tell you about it that uh, in the first few centuries of the church, somewhere in the 300s, there was a Roman governor called Pliny the Elder who wrote a letter to the emperor Trajan. So neither of these guys are Christians. And Pliny is writing the letter to Trajan because he needs advice on how to deal with the Christians. Because the Christians refuse to swear allegiance to the Roman emperor. They are so obstinate that it is frustrating to him that they are refusing to submit to the rule in the state. But, he says in the letter, aside from their refusal to submit to the emperor, and then he puts in this little aside, which surely is condemnable, (laughs) and he goes on, I can find no other wrong in them. He says, in fact, they are the ones feeding our poor and ministering in our streets, and they gather together day and night, wounding up the poor and broken of our city. And then he goes on, so what do I do? Do I condemn them? Do I not condemn them? And uh, the emperor decided that uh, it was indeed not okay to not swear allegiance to the emperor, but there was no reason to go about uh, needlessly persecuting Christians. And so he said, hey, If charges are brought up on a Christian, you need to condemn them. But don't go seek them out. Let them be uh, unless they're brought forth. And so there were a few hundred years of sort of underground Christianity after that. But I just want us to see that even at that early point in history that non-Christian rulers looked around and saw this frustrating people who refused to participate in their kingdom, but who were nevertheless a life force of blessing and goodness uh, in their city. If, if you can imagine, uh, this type of Christianity is like a cancer that's good. If you can imagine cancer working backwards so that a body was mostly dead, but there was a little clump of cells that was alive, and they were growing and spreading, and then other cells broke off from that cancer and settled in other parts of the bodies, in a joint over here, and so now those cells are growing there, and the joint works. And then those cells sent out other cells to the heart and begin growing there. And now the heart works like it never did before. That, that is the mission that we're set before, uh, set before us when we uh, wake up in the morning and go to work, when we serve in the church. This is the end uh, that the Lord has set before us. Uh, we are to soak up this blessing and share it with others. 
Let me pray. Lord, I thank you that you have indeed given us such a glorious calling. Lord, it is far too far above our heads. Um, Give us your grace, your blessing that you have promised, Lord, that we may uh, go, that you may defend us, that you may make our name great so that we may be a blessing to all the families of the earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.